1970, he saw Britain as a uh, as an independent and sovereign nation that was not intended to get involved in this itself. But he was it was from the outside going to be, as I say, a friend, ally, sponsor. He used any number of other adjectives as well about Britain's relationship with the European project. So we were not going to be part of it, but we were going to be supportive of it. Sir Nicholas Soames, the grandson of Winston Churchill, claimed during the 2016 referendum on Brexit, quote, that the last thing on earth Churchill would have been is an isolationist. Yes, he went on, I think he would have wanted to stay in the EU. On the other hand, David Davis, the leading pro-Brexit politician, argued that this vision of Churchill as a remainer was in, quote, defiance of history. Winston Churchill, Davis went on, saw a very good argument for some sort of a United States of Europe, but he never wanted us, Britain, to be a part of it. That is the key point. Now, as part of Uncommon Decency's biographical series on giants of European history, we felt we couldn't shy away from covering Churchill, having covered Napoleon, Henry Kissinger, and others. Now, Churchill's passionate plea for a United States of Europe has been duly acclaimed by historians, but just what place did he envision the UK taking in that post-war European order? To answer that question, we are joined by historian Andrew Roberts, who has written Churchill, Walking with Destiny, a best-selling biography of the former prime minister. In addition, Mr. Roberts hosts the Hoover Institution's Secrets of Statecraft podcast. Now, as always, please rate and review on Common Decency on Apple Podcasts or the platform of your choice, and send us your comments or questions either on Twitter at UndecencyPod or by email at UndecencyPod at gmail.com. And if you're feeling generous, please consider supporting the show through Patreon at patreon.com forward slash UndecencyPod. Now, enjoy the show. Andrew Roberts joins us today. He's a British historian, journalist, and broadcaster. He's the author of many bestsellers, including his biography of Napoleon, Napoleon in Life, published in 2014, The Storm of War, A New History of the Second World War, published in 2009, and lastly, George III, The Last King of America, The Misunderstood Reign of George III, published last year in 2021. But... Most relevant to our ongoing series of biographical episodes, you published back in 2018, Churchill, Walking with Destiny, which is a fantastic biography on perhaps one of the most covered historical figures in the world. So thanks a lot, Professor um, Roberts, for coming on the show. Um, We're very glad to have you and hope it's been an interesting conversation on Churchill in Europe. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Francois. It's very good to be on the show. So I think our regular listeners will remember that we published last year a similar biographical episode on, on Napoleon entitled Napoleon the Great European with the historians Adam Zamoski and Michael Browse. Um, first of all, you've written um, biographies on both of these mammoths of European history. Perhaps were you struck by any kind of similarities when you were writing both of these biographies? Were they cut from the same cloth, so to speak? I think they were cut from uh, much the same cloth, yes. I mean, they both very much believed in their own destinies. Mm. Um, Napoleon believed in his star, famously, and and so did Churchill. Churchill had a sense that he had a destiny, that he was going to save Britain and save uh, civilization, even from the age of 16 onwards. And uh, in my book, I go into all the reasons for this, um, for this sort of assumption that he had. But he also had the great advantage, of course, of being able to model himself on Napoleon. He Mm. was um, somebody who collected and read a great deal of of the books on Napoleon. He would quote Napoleon on a regular basis. He was, uh, when he went to Paris, he visited Napoleon's tomb. Um, Of course, during the Second World War, he was a a person who uh, especially would quote that um, line of Napoleon's from the 1809 German campaign, um, l'audace, l'audace, toujours l'audace. He believed in audacity. and, And one of the reasons that he did and you see it throughout his um, career, of course, this, this sense of audacity. One of the reasons that he did was because of Napoleon. 
Um, just one thing before we get into the heart of the um, conversation. Um, you, you wrote a biography on Napoleon, you wrote a biography on Churchill. I don't have the official data here, but they're probably the two historical figures in European history who had the most biographies written on them in the past 50 years or so. Um, how do you manage to write a book on these giants and still make it fresh and, and different? How, how, how does that work? I'm just curious from an uh, amateur historian, how, 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 does that, how does a professional do it? Um, I think the key thing, and you're quite right about how many there are, there are over a thousand biographies of uh, mm. Churchill and there are more books um, with Napoleon in the title than there have been days since his death. Oh, wow. uh, over 200 years ago now so uh it's um it is difficult to uh, keep things fresh i think the trick is not to bother too much about reading the secondary material reading oh. the other biographies the con you must concentrate really on um the uh on the subjects themselves what they've written what they've left what they said uh, and so on and uh, and really sort of try to as much as possible ignore the the secondary material oh. So let's get into the heart of the conversation. Winston Churchill and Europe. How do you describe Churchill's personal relationship with, with the continent, with Europe? Um, and perhaps what was his instinctive political read on the continent? Because, you know, I am French and I was born here long enough to understand the British um, psyche. I've watched enough Yes Minister to understand the approach of, of, um, of, the, of U, the UK to, to Europe and to France. But... Was he one of those great British diplomatic cynics who had played divide and conquer? Um, did he seek to keep Britain as far as away from continental entanglements and focus on, on Le Grand Large, on the, on the worldwide scene rather than Europe? Um, what was instinctively his read on, on Europe? And then perhaps we'll focus on his post-war vision for Europe, but instinctively, how did, how did he approach the continent? Um, he instinctively approached it um, as a European. He mm. recognised that the role of Britain was to um, uh, support the balance of power in Europe and that when that balance of power uh, broke down, as it did under Philip II of Spain, Louis XIV uh, of France, whose great, of course, Churchill's own great ancestor, the Duke of Marlborough, fought against uh, Louis XIV and defeated him. Mm -hmm. uh, and then again, of course, under the Kaiser, where um, uh, Churchill himself fought in the trenches and uh, ultimately, of course, Hitler and oh. indeed Napoleon. Although he admired Napoleon, looked up to Napoleon, he knew that Napoleon was a threat to um, to the balance of power in Europe. Um, indeed, completely overturned it. So he recognised the role of Britain in needing to be involved in Europe, in getting in uh, to coalitions, if possible, which would re-establish the, the balance of power in Europe. So in that sense, yes, he was an imperialist who was looking around the world to all the various yeah. places that Britain had sort of turned pink on the map, but he recognised that the true threat to uh, Britain lay in the um, channel ports under the um, falling under the control of a uh, of an aggressive enemy. Hmm. Yeah, and let, let's uh, delve a little deeper here into kind of Winston Churchill's vision for post-war uh, Europe. In a recent speech you gave at the National Conservatism Conference in Brussels, you you seem to to, to fault um, Europhile historians for uh, extensively quoting uh, Winston Churchill, uh, the, the Winston Churchill from the um, kind of mid and mid to late 40s, but not so much the Winston Churchill from the early to mid well, no, actually, and even can late I, 50s. Can I in there, um, okay. Actually, and, and, what, um, I, I don't mind it when they quote those great speeches at The Hague and uh, Zurich and Strasbourg. What I don't like is the way they cut out when they are quoting the uh, absolute key sentences that uh, completely undermine their case. Huh. Oh, okay, wonderful. Um, well, that's uh, that's understood, and, and I guess the, the the kind of the the thrust of this question is how did uh, Churchill see the future of Europe in those speeches that you've extensively researched and, and analyzed? What was uh, Churchill's vision of uh, Franco the Franco German tandem um, uh, with sort of the the uh, the the uh, the, uh, the old uh, hatred between those two countries kind of still still fresh in fresh in the aftermath of the war? How did see how did he see 
uh, the European economy in shambles? How did he, he see the um, the continent divided by a political and ideological border with his famous uh, Iron uh, uh, Curtain speech? Of course, it wasn't just the Second World War, though the, he gave the Iron Curtain speech after the Second World War. It was the um, fact that there had been two Franco-German wars that had sucked in the whole of Europe and ultimately mm. world the world. Um, and he recognised that if you could have... Um, amity, if you could have friendship between, as he put it, Teuton and Gaul, if those two um, great peoples were able to be drawn into some kind of economic system that was so close with one another that it became impossible for either of them to create great armaments ever again and go to war ever again against one another, then you would have an important guarantee of um, a future peace in Europe. Not an ultimate guarantee, of course. Not least, we've just seen war in Europe break out without uh, France and Germany being involved. But uh, he recognised that as part of this uh, balance of power that I mentioned earlier, um, one thing that was absolutely necessary was to ensure that France and Germany were, were closely economically tied together. And, uh, and so he was very much in favour of that. And, and, and in this architecture, um, where did he see the, the, the UK lay? What was the relationship to this kind of new European order? Well, as I mentioned in the the, the uh, those speeches, the um, uh, the Strasbourg and uh, Hague and um, Zurich speeches of the late nineteen mid to late nineteen forties, he made it very very clear again and again in each of those speeches that he wanted Britain to be a friend and a sponsor and an ally of this new European um, order. He didn't want Britain to be a member of it. Um, under no circumstances was he going to give up um, any British sovereignty. He saw Britain as a uh, as an independent and sovereign nation that was not intended to get involved in this itself. But he was it was from the outside going to be, as I say, a friend, ally, sponsor. He used any number of other adjectives as well about oh. Britain's relationship with the European project. So we were not going to be part of it, but we were going to be supportive of it. Huh. Yeah. And, and fast forward to uh, to the Brexit debates and one of one of the more befuddling things to, to watch as the debate unfolded uh, for, for a non-British uh, audience was that both sides of that referendum, the Leave, both the Leave and the Remain camp seemed to um, claim uh, a part of Churchill's kind of legacy and a part of his um, uh, kind of a geopolitical yes, I mean, thoughts. Sorry, just to, um, again to butt in, I think uh, the, uh, main part, the main side did it as a sort of false flag operation because they knew huh. perfectly well that the Leave uh, side um, had Churchill on their side. And so in order to try to negate that, they came up with a whole load of completely ludicrous arguments about how Churchill would have been a Remainer. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, and, and precisely to, to delve a little deeper in that, the uh, in, in 2016, the historian Felix Kloss published Churchill on Europe, the untold story of Churchill's European project, where he argues pretty forcefully that Churchill would have backed Remain, which you 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 claim is is uh, is, is is not the case. Uh, where do you stand on this? Well, I mean, I can you elaborate Felix. a little a, bit? He's on... a great chap. He's a, a highly impressive young man. He's a, a fine politician, good historian. Apart from this <laughs> subject, where he gets it completely and ridiculously wrong, I've debated him. In fact, I've debated him in the chamber in Zurich, mm. where at Zurich University, where where Churchill gave that uh, that great speech. Mm. I mean, it's. Really just impossible to read those speeches and to see the remarks that Churchill makes and also think that he would have been in favour of Britain um, actually joining the European project. He speaks very openly about how America, Russia and Britain must be outside it. He states again and again that America and Britain have a special relationship with one another, a, a term that he himself made up uh, and invented in the Harvard speech in September 1943. He talks again and again about the um, the separateness uh, and also Britain's responsibility to its Commonwealth. So there was yeah. simply no way that he wanted Britain to be uh, a member of this thing. But as I say, he wanted it to be a friend and ally and sponsor from the yeah. outside. Um, if we are going to do the gross overgeneralisation, um, in the UK, the right was, was more in favour of Brexit and the left was more in favour of Remain. There's obviously exceptions, but kind of 
if you look at the general atmospherics of the whole frustration, it's mostly true. But isn't there kind of a bit of a tension here, where at the same time the, um, the Remain left tried very hard to enroll Winston Churchill in their ranks for the elections. And at the same time, there's been a sense on the left of growing unease with the figure of Churchill for his um, imperialist positions, especially in his early part of his career, for his alleged racism, um, misogyny, and so on. Um, it's quite interesting, actually, because in many ways, Churchill is similar to, to, to de Gaulle in that sense, where there's been a very whitewashed version of him, where he is seen as this kind of unifying figure, when back when he was a politician, he was incredibly, he's seen as incredibly divisive. Um, how has the, the image of Winston Churchill changed, perhaps, in the last decade or so? Um, and um, where do you see it going? And, and perhaps a bit on the, on the left's relationship to Churchill. Um, are, are they uncomfortable? Do they feel they need to have him on their side, but without completely understanding who he was? How do you see it, how, how does it work? Well, I, I agree with you that uh, there has been certainly a, a major shift on the left. Hmm. Um, I'm not. I'm, I don't think he's thought of as a misogynist. Um, he, the, the fact that he opposed uh, female suffrage in the early stages. I mean, he obviously voted for it in 1919. Mm. In fact, but uh, but you know, I don't think people think of Lloyd George and Asquith and other people mm. who took the same stances as, as him as misogynists. Um, in fact, when Churchill College Cambridge was set up, he insisted that it should be one of the very few colleges in Cambridge that did accept women. So, mm. um, so I, I take a. Um, a, uh, a, a sort of um, contrary view on that, certainly. With regard to the whole issue of um, race and uh, and the empire, sure. of course, the left are uh, are entirely um, entirely sort of revisionist about this, uh, or indeed post revisionist about this. But they find it very difficult, I think, to look at history um, and certainly Churchill in his proper context. Uh, this is a man who was born in 1874 oh. at a time when uh, Charles Darwin was still alive and people believed, um, we know it to be absurd and uh, obnoxious today, but he oh. believed that there were a hierarchy of the races and that uh, and that the British were on top. And so the way in which um, the left... And you see this also with the statues debate and mm. various other cultural war issues in, in Britain at the moment, just absolutely refuse to see history in its proper historical context is a problem for the left, I think, rather than for Churchill. Hmm. Um, let's move on because we talked about post-war. But what is quite interesting is despite Churchill's um, opposition to joining a European community, as it was called back then, uh, in the end, it was the Conservative Party that got the um, United Kingdom into the European community. Um, and I was thinking about it because I was reading um, Alain Perfit's, um not exactly memoir, but recollection of his time with de Gaulle when he was one of his ministers. And there's an incredibly prescient moment where de Gaulle says, the British are not ready to join the European community. Um, the current conservative uh, majority has to lose, the opposition has to come back, and then a new conservative party has to go into office um, before they actually will be ready to join the European community, which is pretty much exactly what happened. Um, but it also seems to suggest that de Gaulle's opposition to the United Kingdom joining the European community seems to have been less um, kind of structural and fundamental than perhaps we could think. Do you think similarly Churchill's idea that the United Kingdom should be a out but not in sponsor of the European community, do you think it would have mellowed had he stayed in power later on in the 1960s? And perhaps, you know, it's, it's obviously science fiction here because he would have been a bit old for that, but um, um, how do you think he would have approached that? Because obviously the, the, the pressures and the tensions that got his conservative successors to join the European community, uh, you know, the, the loss of empire, the economic difficulties, do you think that Churchill might have mellowed in those conditions and seen actually maybe we are better in and not out. Um, or do you think the the difference you talked about um, Britain and its its uh, worldview would have been too kind of strong for Churchill to accept joining the European community? 
I think quite a lot. I, you were very right and interesting, I think, about starting with the, the de Gaulle stance yeah. because um, Charles de Gaulle, of course, was deeply affected by um, Franklin Roosevelt's um, attitude towards him and Winston Churchill saying of Franklin Roosevelt to de Gaulle that um, if Britain has to choose the open sea or Europe, i.e. has to choose and he was talking specifically at the time about FDR and de Gaulle. Oh. He said, I will always choose FDR. Oh. And um, and de Gaulle saw that uh, when he said no, which he did on my birthday, in fact, on the 13th <laughs> of January 1963, when he said no, um, one of the occasions he said no, at least, oh. uh, it was on my birthday, um, he was very much seeing this as uh, Britain as having to be outside um, for the period of the sort of gestation of the uh, European um, community, because otherwise it wasn't going to grow in a way oh. that he needed it to grow. With regard to Churchill, I think you know, if even if he stayed in uh, in power, you know, until he was a hundred um, oh. in the in the uh, um, mid nineteen seventies, he would still have. Um, taken this stance towards the Americans. Now, what might have happened, and what in a sense did happen, was that the Americans pushed um, Britain towards joining the um, the European Union. I, it was a mistake, I think, ultimately and strategically for them to have done that. Um, and uh, and we only managed to sort of get away from all that in two thousand and twenty one. But um, it was. Uh, a really um, uh, part of, and Henry Kissinger talks about this interestingly, it was part of uh, American policy to try to push, push Britain into the European Union. Oh. And um, I think had Churchill been around uh, for longer, he would have been able to have explained to the Americans why that was not a good thing. Oh. Whereas people who were much more naturally Europhile like um Harold Macmillan and uh, Edward Heath didn't see that as part of, of their job to to wake the Americans up to the oh. ultra, uh, underlying plan of the uh, European founding fathers, which was to set up a, um, a super state that was one day going to be able to um, rival America. Hmm. Um, I'm, I'm going to do a bit of an um, intermission here to, to quote from the Great show, yes, Minister. Um, but yeah, I, I have a point. I'm glad, you, point. I'm glad you take it as as a serious political evidence. So do I. I think it's a I think it's a wonderful show. I think it's a wonderful show. In, if you want to understand Britain in, in, in its mindset and its relationship to, to politics, I think it's a great show. But Sir Humphrey says, Minister, Britain has had the same foreign policy objective for at least the past 500 years, to create a disunited Europe. In that cause, we have fought with the Dutch against the Spanish, the Germans against the French, were French and Italians against the Germans, and were French against the Germans and Italians. Divide and rule, you see. Why should we change now when it's worked so well? The minister says, that's all ancient history, surely. Yes, and current policy. We had to break the whole thing up, the European community up, so, so we had to, we, sorry, we had to break the whole thing, the European community, so we had to get inside. We tried to break it from the outside, but that wouldn't work. Now that we're inside, we can make a complete pig's breakfast of the whole thing. Set the Germans against the French, the French against the Italians, the Italians against the Dutch. The Foreign Office is terribly pleased. It's just like old times. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a very fam famous and, and funny extract of, of, a, of a great show. But is there part of that mentality explaining why Britain in the end decided to join the European community? despite um, uh, being on the sidelines for, for much of its early history. How do you explain this change of mindset? You know, the insular mindset or the imperial mindset that you described with Churchill surely still existed when the UK decided after all to join the European community. How do you explain that shift? I don't think it did. I think by 1973, you look at the, uh, the politics of the early 1970s uh, when Britain did join and one recognises the... Um, uh, terrible strikes. The and industrial action was just was just endemic. Um, the uh, collapse in the pound. The um, start of an insurrection in Northern Ireland. You had um, miners' strikes as well. You oh. had a a um, Middle Eastern crisis which trebled the price of oil. Oh. You know the British economy 
um, had been lagging behind certainly the the um, German and the Japanese defeated powers economies very badly by the early 1970s as well. And there was a sense of total defeatism. Um, the whole, uh, oh. with regard to what was going on, obviously, with the special relationship, that was ruptured partly because uh, Ted Heath didn't uh, get on with um, with um, uh, um, LBJ and oh. also because of Vietnam, where we weren't, where we didn't get involved. Oh. And quite rightly, obviously. Oh. So all in all, you had a massive um, sense uh, that we were going to drop out of being of the of the second tier of of countries in the world in the 1970s, and that one of the ways to uh, try to avoid that was to take this enormous leap in the dark and join the uh, common market, as it was called then. Um, what actually was the thing that saved us from dropping out of the Second League of Countries was Margaret Thatcher at the end of the of that decade. It wasn't joining the EU uh, in 1973. Hmm. Um, let's focus on um, Churchill's special relationship with uh, France, of all places. So I was, I, was, um, I was reading your biography the past week, and I'm actually quite struck to see that some of his heroes were Napoleon, Joan of Arc, who obviously were flamboyant French foes of Her Majesty throughout um, you know, the past thousand years. So I was quite struck to see that. His wife is also very much a Francophile, like Churchill. I believe his parents uh, were married in France. Um, I'm not completely sure about that, but I believe that is true. And there's even some rumours that he might have been conceived in Paris, so who knows. Um, they were married in the British Embassy in uh, Paris, so it's uh, yes, it's physically in France, but legally part of Britain. Okay, that's an important distinction. Um, he's a famous Francophile. He would sometimes write in French to his wife Clementine. Um, he spent many months holidaying in France, especially after World War Two, where he was a bit of a bit of a hero and welcome everywhere. Um, but he also, in more substantial terms. He had this kind of sympathy, political sympathy for France. Uh, you talk about how even pre-World War One, he had this great admiration for the French army. And during World War Two, once it became clear that the Germans really had the upper hand on the French army, um, he explored the idea of merging both countries. And yet Churchill was obviously a proud British imperialist. And in France, he is also known as the man of Marcel Kébir when he decided that the Royal Navy should sink the French fleet to avoid the possibility of Nazi Germany potentially laying its hands on the French Navy. Um, how would you describe Churchill's relationship with England's oldest rival? Um, he loved France. He was taken to France when he was young, when he was sort of seven or eight. And uh, he remembers uh, by his father. And he remembered... Um, later in life, how back in those days in the 1870s, there was, or early 1880s, this would have been, he had a, uh, he saw the the statue of Strasbourg in the um, uh, Place de la Concorde with a huge black crepe um, cape put over it, um, not cape, but more, more sort of tarpaulin almost. And uh, because, of course, they'd lost Strasbourg in the uh, Franco-Prussian War. Um, and he and he was very, uh, from that moment on, he was very pro-French. Yes, you're right, of course, uh, ultimately he had to take that terrible decision to sink the French fleet. Um, but, um, but actually it reduced him to tears having to do that. And he cried yeah. in the House of Commons um, when he had to announce it. He loved uh, he loved France and um, and her people. His his French, of course, was execrable. He basically spoke French in an English uh, accent. Um, but uh, but he had very strong um, friendships with uh, with French people. Um, it was a it was a Frenchman who essentially taught him how to paint. Um, one of his greatest heroes of his life was uh, Georges Clemenceau, and oh. he was a um, a true francophile in in British politics, which an awful lot of conservatives, uh, British conservatives were not. Um, 
But as but but I think really the uh, the key to his relationship with France was always British um, national interest. So it, because it was in British national interest to be closely allied to France in the Great War uh, and uh, and at the beginning of the Second World War, um, he uh, he followed that when it was very much in British national interest not to have the Nazis control control the French fleet. Um, then he sank it. Um, I, I want to focus on one special moment of World War II, which was this incredibly ambitious project. Um, you know, the European project seems very uh, limited compared to the scale of this one, which was a potential union of France and Britain. Now, the context is um, France is being bit- beaten and uh, they need any kind of solution. And the idea, I think, starts in France, it emerges in, in French political circles, of merging both countries into one and to make sure to, to essentially keep France in the war by merging both countries. Um, can you walk us through what is truly a extraordinary moment of European history? Um, how close were we to seeing, even temporarily, France and, and Britain, the old rivals, merge into one country? I don't think we were that close, frankly. The whole thing was a was a, a plan to just try to keep France in the war, um, and mm. uh, and therefore to continue it fighting uh, down south, and then ultimately for the government to leave metropolitan France and and move over to Algiers. That was the that was the idea. So the legitimacy of France was kept, and uh, and Vichy, and the Vichy government was not um, established. That was what this was all about. It was. You're quite right. I mean, it was incredibly uh, the, the the conversations that took place between. Uh, um, I think Pleven was uh, Rennie Pleven was uh, involved in it. Um, various people in the Foreign Office, uh, Sir Alexander Cadogan was involved in it. They came up with a postage stamp, even. Uh, wow. And the hilarious thing also was that nobody told the king. Um, that his uh, that his country was about to be uh, um, merged with uh, with a republic, um, oh. but um, but look, it was uh, last minute, um, desperate, last ditch, frankly, um, and uh, and of course it it didn't come off, but uh, uh, it shows very little, I think, about Anglo-French relations, but it shows a great deal about how far Churchill was willing to go oh. to try to keep France fighting in June nineteen forty. Because I think his first reaction was a bit sceptical, to say the least, and he progressively warmed to the idea um, as, as the days went by. That's right, yes. I mean, but June 1940 was full of very weird um, things and, and weird moments. In fact, that whole, that whole period, you know, when you're desperately fighting for your... Uh, for your life and for the continuation of your country, you will um, you'll grasp at any straws, and that was a, a particularly yeah. uh, weak one, I think. Mm. Mm, yeah. So it's, it's hard to talk about um, the, the United Kingdom and, and Brexit specifically and Churchill without mentioning one of Churchill's distant successors, the current prime minister, Boris Johnson. Obviously, Johnson, you know, in, in many ways has spent his entire career trying to position himself as a, as a heir of Churchill. He wrote a biography of the man, The Churchill Factor, came out in 2014. Um, pretty straightforward question. Does, does Boris have some, some Winston in him? <laughs> I I think it's no bad thing when politicians write history books. Um, I'm all in favour of it. Huh. I think when politicians are able to look at the past, especially the great uh, men and women of the past, um, and if they want to try to uh, to emulate them, then that's a, a good thing. Um, I think that uh, along with Disraeli, Boris and Churchill are the only two prime ministers who, um, i.e. the three of them, who tried to earn a living by their pen, um, which is obviously also, as far as I'm concerned, a, a, a positive factor. It means that they have to interest people. They have to use uh, colourful phraseology and uh, and arresting wit, and those are good things as well in politics. I mean, if you're, if you're asking me, does Boris think that he's Winston Churchill or is he, is he channeling um, Winston Churchill? Uh, then I think he would be if we were under, you know, mortal danger. But um, but in a uh, in normal democratic politics, um, I don't think that that's uh, really what he's trying to do. What he's trying to do is learn some positive lessons about uh, 
uh, from yeah. from Churchill, and that's something I think everyone should do. Because there's usually a case with those, those biographies made by politicians where the joke is usually it says more about the author than about the um, actual figure being written on. Um, but there's one one thing which really uh, I thought was quite striking, especially in the kind of early early half or well, actually during most of the book, there's kind of a thread of the question of Tory democracy, which goes back to his father. Um, Churchill wasn't this kind of grand ideologue, so he wasn't completely sure how to define it himself. But the general idea that would you know, probably goes back to Disraeli, uh, prime minister, the idea that the state should be able to some extent to help those who are most unfortunate and living in the most difficult circumstances. Um, obviously, there's been a bit of a revolution in the Conservative Party with Margaret Thatcher, which has aligned the party a lot closer to um, American Reaganism and uh, free trade and deregulation and the rest of it. But perhaps to some extent, you think uh, Boris Johnson has been the channel of a bit of a for a bit of a reorientation of the Conservative Party towards more a modern form of Tory democracy. Well, I, if you look at um, the amount of money, for example, we were spending on the NHS, that went up under Margaret Thatcher. So uh, oh. I think um, it's it's far too easy to assume that she's just that she was just a sort of austerity prime minister from beginning to end who wanted to cut taxes and cut um, social spending. Um, oh. She she didn't. She was in power for a very long time, eleven and a half years, and oh. uh, social spending was not. Cut. So I think the um, you know even allowing for inflation. So I think that it's very easy to um, to sort of try to um, to box conservatives into right or left. Um, Boris, yes, he's a one nation conservative, uh, and he tends, it's said at least in cabinet, to uh, to take that stance more than, say, Rishi Sunak, the uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer, right. who's who's uh, supposedly much more uh, keen on taking um, a, uh, a tighter view of the government finances. But we're still at the moment now um, at a state where um, there's a higher taxation in Britain than at any time since the Attlee ministry. So, right. so you know, I think that um, it's, it's just too... Um, uh, it's just too easy to try to uh, to say that um, Tory politicians are on one side or the other, frankly. Okay. Okay. Well, Brent, one one final question. Since you um, we've we've uh, we've addressed uh, whether or not Boris Johnson you know channels or thinks he channels. Uh, parts of Winston Churchill's character. Um, is there anyone else in, in today's geopolitical landscape that you think uh, is um, it, we can relate to win, to parts of Winston Churchill's uh, persona? Undoubtedly, I mean, uh, undoubtedly uh, President Zelensky of, um, of Ukraine, of course. You know, he is uh, acting in a completely Churchillian manner and has done since the 24th of February of this year. He's done everything that... Uh, uh, Churchill would have done, and uh, and a few things more. He's had the most fantastic. Uh, he's it's straight out of the Churchill playbook, frankly. His he's channeling his inner Churchill, mm. and uh, and the you can see that from the way in which he speaks directly to the people, the way in which he doesn't try and sugarcoat anything, the way in which he paraphrased Churchill himself, talking about fighting in the forests and fighting in the streets. Uh, when he oh. addressed the British mm. Parliament, he was a uh, um, an absolute, is a, an absolute Churchillian um, figure when it comes to leadership of his country in a time, as I mentioned, you know, Boris can't be a Churchill because there isn't a war on. Uh, whereas um, with Zelensky, there definitely is a war on, and he has uh, learnt his leadership lessons from the best. Yeah, it is quite quite remarkable actually, um, because there's obviously this conversation about um, that does the hour make it for man? Um, in other words, um, because Zelensky before the invasion was seen as somewhat of a average, if not mediocre, uh, leader. And he seems to have hit a new gear, a new level with that invasion. And I was reading this um, famous Ukrainian novelist in the, in the Garden the other day, where he was um, saying that he wasn't a big fan of Zelensky before the invasion. But there seems to have been a transformation. Um, and whether that's something we will have in us capable of being tapped in those difficult moments, or whether it is reserved to uh, a few single individuals. 
Well, that's also true of Churchill, remember. An awful lot of people couldn't stand yeah. him, especially in the Conservative mm -hmm. Party. But when he started sharing his uh, his great leadership um, qualities in 1940, they rallied around him. I was in mm. Ukraine um, about three weeks ago and uh, speaking mm. to Ukrainians there who did not support Zelensky, who hadn't voted for him, uh, Hungarian ethnic Hungarians in Transcarpathia, um, sorry, mm. Subcarpathia, and they were saying um, that they hugely admired uh, Zelensky. You know, they were definitely going to vote for him in the next election, uh, and that um, and that his uh, his leadership had brought them round. And that is, in a sense, you know, what leadership is all about. Hmm. Well, Professor Andrew Roberts, thank you so much for coming on Uncommon Decency for this fascinating conversation. This is our third historical biographical portrait after um, Napoleon, Kissinger, and now, um, now Churchill, so he is in good company here. Um, thank you so much, Professor Roberts. You're welcome. Thank you. Bye-bye. And uh, to our listeners, I say to you, see you next week. So, Jorge, uh, the historian, the great historian Andrew Roberts just left us. What did you make of this conversation? So I thought it was it was obviously a fascinating and very wide ranging discussion. I, I thought yeah. I would give yeah. our audience maybe a little bit of visibility into why it is that they're hearing from Andrew Roberts. Um, as it happens, uh, just under a month ago, uh, you and I were were at the National Conservatism Conference in Brussels, which had yeah. been put together by the Edmund Burke Foundation. We even dedicated uh, an episode to talking about the conference with Sebastian Miliband, M Milibank. I believe that was episode 57, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. And um, and the idea of having Andrew Roberts on the show was spawned that very week by um, by uh, being, being at the speech that he gave at that conference um, about Churchill and Zelensky, right? He even adapted that speech and turned it into an opinion piece for the Wall Street Journal. And essentially the main thrust of the piece was saying that, listen, here is the Ukrainian president borrowing from uh, this sort of like Churchillian persona and this Churchillian uh, form of uh, conducting uh, uh, the warfare, uh, the wartime affairs of, of his nation. Um, so I, I thought it was a, a very interesting discussion. I, I'm, I think that we have to be very mindful of the distinction here between Churchill, the peacetime minister, and Churchill, the wartime prime minister. I think there, those are two entirely different uh, forms of uh, statecraft and statesmanship. Um, and I think that Andrew Roberts himself made the point that, listen, uh, when, I, when I'm talking about Churchill's, um, or, or as Boris Johnson would have it, when I'm, when I'm talking about the, Bor the Churchill factor, I'm talking about Churchill's wartime leadership. That's really what he is remembered for. Um, what, what did you think about this episode, Francois? Yeah, first of all, I, I want to say I was so happy to be able to and meet uh, Andrew Roberts at that conference. I was uh, as giddy as a schoolboy when I got to talk to him because I was a huge fan of him ever since he published this wonderful biography on, on Napoleon. He published in 2013 or 2014, Napoleon, Napoleon the Great. Um, and I was amazed to read such a positive biography on Napoleon from a Englishman, uh, which is, I think, a point we made back in our podcast on Napoleon the Great European, where we're kind of marveling at the fact that most of the positive biographies on Napoleon in the past few years actually have been published in, in, in England, of all places, um, the old enemy. But so I got to I got to to to, to meet with him, and and I told him I read his book until Napoleon reached Moscow in eighteen twelve where the energy to finish the end of the book just couldn't, 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 couldn't keep up. And uh, obviously someone had spoiled me the end of Napoleon and I didn't quite like it. Um, so I, I had to, to stop in 1812. Mm. Um, apart from that, I thought his, um, his book on, on, on Churchill is, is really thorough, really interesting. Um, you know, so, so, many, so many little anecdotes on you know, how he was kind of handling his finances, his alcohol mm. and rest of it is a fascinating character um i think the reason we did this episode though is apart for the you know fact we we bounce into him in brussels and um and um you know the the character that he is is he has a kind of interesting position in the conversation on europe obviously around around brexit 
uh, all sides were wrestling to have him have Churchill on their side, so to speak. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think Derek Cameron said that he would have been a Remainer if he was still alive. Um, Nicholas Soames, his great sort of grandson, sorry, of Churchill, um, argued that he would have been a, um, a European, that he would have opposed isolationism. People like David Davis said, people are, you, you're getting it wrong. He liked Europe, but he thought that the United Kingdom was outside of it. Uh, the United States of Europe is, is, a, is, a, is a great project, but we, the UK should be outside of it. So it's interesting to have this conversation. Now, obviously, um, it's no secret that our, our guests today um, ended, up backing, um, ended up backing leave back in 2016. Um, but I think he makes a good case for the, the why Churchill, I'm not sure the words Brexiter or Remainer have much sense in the kind of 20th, 20th century context, but I think he definitely saw Britain as an entity outside of Europe, or kind of in and out at the same time. Um, and I don't think he could have, anyone in the 1950s could have imagined what the EU is nowadays, you know, it's kind of large entity, with a lot of supranational elements in, included into it. Um, I don't think anyone could have imagined what it would have meant in, in 1950, what the EU would be in 2020. Um, yeah, so it's a very interesting conversation and there's a, a lot to pick on because we are doing these profiles of different characters. Um, we did Napoleon, of course, we did uh, Henry Kissinger. We've got many, many others in the work, maybe Conrad Adenauer and, and a few others. So if you have any, actually, if, if our viewers have any recommendations, of different historical figures we could we could do um, please let us know we always on the lookout for such such episodes um but why Churchill was interesting is he is sometimes kind of described as one of the founding fathers of, of modern Europe because of his speech on the United States of Europe but I think in this case what might be a little more precise is maybe the founding yeah. uncle you know someone that isn't exactly within the nuclear family just slightly outside but also somewhat part of the family um yeah i don't know it's an interesting relationship with, with europe yeah absolutely and and um and roberts um, really makes that makes a very important distinction in that speech and in that uh, opinion piece for the journal where uh he faults yeah. uh what he calls Euro europhile historians for selectively quoting from churchill's speeches yeah. um they he he um he he you know he says you know, they quote only those uh, parts of Churchill's uh, speeches that go that that um, show a, a very pro-Europe kind of a facet to Churchill's thinking, and refrain from quoting those parts of his speeches that are more kind of that are more sovereignist or sort of um, yeah. in favor of an, of an independent Britain um, in a Europe of nation states. So. I uh, thought that was an, an interesting dis uh, um, distinction, and we will link in the episode show notes. Uh, we will link to uh, both the piece and uh, to Andrew Roberts's uh, podcast. Yeah, um, one thing I wanted to add as we were preparing for this episode, I obviously you know, read his book or rest of it, but I also did a bit of background research on Andrew Roberts, and I came across an old Guardian article on I think it was a profile of him in kind of early to mid two thousands. Why well, I discovered that he was uh, briefly in his teens a Trotskyite um, before before becoming a a fan of Margaret Thatcher, and I thought how extraordinary that in the matter of like two years he had the political evolution that you sometimes see for an entire political career, um, which actually is interesting because for for one point where he pushed back the most against us was when we talked about Margaret Thatcher, and we talked about you know the realignment of a of a party that Boris Johnson seems to have initiated the kind of turning away from the kind of more um you know Thatcherite party which was much more um positive on deregulation for example and much much more careful about government intervention and government spending um and it was interesting to see he kind of pushed back because i think he he remains a huge fan of of um of margaret thatcher and he, he doesn't he doesn't believe that the portrayal of her has been fair you know the kind of uh, Reaganite vision of her as being the, the the kindred soul that wants to deregulate and 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 cut down the state has been a bit exaggerated for for the time. I was just interested to see interesting to see that he was the most defensive at that mm -hmm. point, that point. 
Okay. Um, just a few words to all of our listeners before we wrap up. Um, uh, this is going to be the penultimate episode of this season. We'll be releasing one next week on the French election um, once we get the results of the runoff. So um, stay tuned for that. But we just want to let you know we're going to end this season maybe a little earlier than we we might have liked because I think um, you might even be able to hear it from my voice. We're a bit tired, Jorge and myself. Uh, I'm a bit sick and uh, we've been doing a lot of stuff and we have a lot kind of personal stuff to deal with. And you know, we do this podcast on our spare time. Um, we don't make money out of this. I think so far all the wonderful patrons have allowed us to kind of pay for our for our equipment, pay for our subscriptions, pay for different various stuff. Um, so there's only so much time and energy we can pour into these without burning out at some point. And you know, also Jorge and myself have been uh, looking for, for jobs and kind of uh, in think tanks and political analysis and all that kind of um, uh, political adjacent world and media as well. So we'll be you know focusing a bit on that over the next few weeks. Um, so yeah, so our apologies. We would have liked to go on for a bit longer, but I think um, we probably could use a bit of a, a bit of a break. And we'll come back at you know, some point in September, maybe in August. But we'll take a, a few months off and try to come back with a bang um, for the next season. Yeah, I do. Watch out for our watch out for our um, return uh, in 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 uh, the months following and uh, after the summer. Yeah. Um, so don't worry, there's still one more episode next week. Um, so stay tuned for that one. Should be very interesting on the French presidential election. Um, if you want to show your support, if you want to you know, give us the energy to keep going on for, for the next few seasons, uh, you can support us on our Patreon, which should be linked down below in the show notes. Um, very useful. Again, if we're coming back in September and in, in, in August, we would also like to try new things like maybe creating a common decency book club where we'll be reading different books and um, and reuniting every other week maybe to discuss these these books. Um, so again, you know, we need to kind of gouge the interest for those projects. So uh, let us know if you're interested. Let us know um, okay. if you want to join our patron because obviously this book club would be kind of patron only feature. Um, yeah, if you can't if you can't afford the patron, no worries. Uh, you could also write a review. You could also share the podcast with a friend. There's a new feature now on Spotify, actually. You can rate the podcast as well. All of these things are tremendously useful and we really appreciate if you could um, spare the time or the money to help us. Um, anyways, thanks a lot, Jorge. See you next week. And uh, to our listeners... See you next week. week.